Well, I'm excited you're here to start Advent with us. Um, and Advent simply means coming. And so when we're celebrating, what we're celebrating is the coming of Christ. And so for the next four weeks, uh, we'll walk through what it means to celebrate the coming of Christ. And, and we celebrate two comings um, when we get together at Advent season. We celebrate the first coming of Christ and the entrance of the way forward so that we might be made right with God through the gift of Jesus Christ. And we also look forward and hope to the second coming, that Jesus will return and all things will be made right. And so over the next few weeks, we'll talk about both of those and celebrate uh, the Advent together. Um, now this season, this Advent season, we're going to look at passages. The Advent guide you get as you walk out today and the passages we preach from the sermons are going to be uh, prophecies, Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ. And we're going to walk through those together. Um, and you'll see, remind, be reminded every week there's a word um, that we celebrate and this week's word is hope and you've heard us talk about that already. Um, and so as we get in the words, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Um, and while you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Um, and literally we're starting at the beginning because all you have to do is turn to page 2 of that Bible and you're right where we need to go. Um, so we're starting at the beginning. And as we, the way we're going to preach this series is different than the way we've done a lot of things. Um, we're going to have two of us preach together. Um, and so what's going to happen is we've got one of our pastors on staff, um, and then most weeks we're going to have a retired pastor who's a part of our church family um, preach alongside us, and we're going to dialogue together and communicate together about the passage we're preaching on. And so this morning we've got Ed Rogers. Um, Ed was a, the pastor at First Baptist Dumas for 34 years, and he pastored for 40 years overall, and so he is a life group teacher here at this point, and so we are so thankful. I tell you personally, I'm thankful for Ed and with the humility, with the way that he leads and teaches. Um, he is a wealth of wisdom and knowledge and heart for me that I love to see. Um, and so he and I are going to get to preach together today. So we're going to begin walking in Genesis chapter 3. Um, and let's read this together. Now it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock. And more than any wild animal, you will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. 
I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You'll eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. You'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out. Take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So it's a story we know and we're familiar with. So I'd unpack that for us. Like, what's really going on here? Well, before I start that, I would like to say, you know, the effort has been to get one of the younger generation with one of the older generation to do this together. But just so there's no confusion in your mind, he is the younger one. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. have you ever stopped to think about what the garden must have been like? In my wildest imagination, and I just have to, I have to think about all of the beauty. Everything that was there was beautiful and, and peaceful in every way. And the one most wonderful thing was that God walked with them in the fellowship and the cool of the evening, day after day after day, and it must have been a fantastic time. But God also put in that garden a tree a tree of good and evil, of knowing good and evil, and he said, you shall not eat of that. And that was the choice that they had to make, whether to eat or not to eat, whether to obey, not to obey. Some people have asked, well, why did he even give them a choice? Why couldn't it just stay like that always? But God made us in his image. And part of the image of God is that being autonomous and having the choice if we didn't have the choice to follow God or to fellowship with God or not, then we would be just robots or we would be slaves with no mind of our own. But rather, he put it there. Now, in that, in that garden came the tempter, the devil. He came in the form of, of a serpent. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't get along too well with nope. those snakes. No, thank you. Especially the ones that are poisonous. No. But he wasn't in that form at that time. He was beautiful and, and tempting. And you can really divide the, the temptation that he gives to, to Eve in three parts. The first thing is in verse 1 where it says uh, simply, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? And what he was doing just casting doubts on God's word. And that has been, that's so all the time. It's today. We constantly hear people saying, well, did God really mean that? Did God really say that? And so we use it to cover up and to do what we want to do and ignore what God actually says. Yeah. The yeah. second thing, he, she, he basically called God a liar. 
because he simply said, God did not say that in verse 3. You shall not die. Well, that's a casting a doubt on, on, on God's truth. We live in a day when people say, you have your truth and I have my truth, and nothing is absolute. I heard that on the radio the other day, two guys talking on a sports station as I was listening, I was driving, and one of them said, are you looking forward to Thanksgiving and having pumpkin pie? And he said, I don't like pumpkin pie. And he said, you don't like pumpkin pie? Why don't you like pumpkin pie? He said, I just don't like pumpkin pie, and that's my truth. You have your truth and I have my truth. Even though that was over something very insignificant. Yeah. When there was it, truth in that. I mean, that's yeah. what we hear today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting to even think like the, the younger generations are given kind of the stereotype, but a part of it being, hey, I, I have my truth, you have your truth, and if I'm really going to love you, I let you have whatever truth you want. Um, but anybody who's ever been a parent knows that's not reality. I don't let my kids pick their truth. Right? If I let my kids pick their truth, they'd be running out in the middle of the, of the street and getting hit by cars. And, um, you know, you, you talk about the, what's happened in this garden and the blame and all that. I mean, my kids come up to me with chocolate on their face and, and I say, did you eat chocolate? No. <laughs> you know, it, truth is not relative, but it is growing. It's this idea of if I love you, I will let you have whatever truth you want. That's not love. No. Well, the third part was said, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. Well, that appealed to uh, their pride and we'll be like God. And it was as if they were saying, God's been holding something back from you all this time. He, and it was casting a doubt on God's goodness. Yeah. Uh, so Eve's response, what did she do? She looked at the tree and what did she see? Number one, it was beautiful, appealing. To the, uh, to the aesthetic view of man, it, it was something to be desired greatly. The second thing she saw was it good for food. Now, I don't know how you did at Thanksgiving. I did but when I looked fine. down upon that, that long table with all that food on the turkey and everything, I'm sorry, I sinned. <laughs> and, and, but it was good for food, and I, that's, that's sort of the way this, this fruit was. It was good for food. And she became hungry and wanted to eat it. And the third thing was make you wise like God and uh, to be our own God. That's, that seems to be what people want, always have wanted is to be their own God, to determine themselves and what they want and so forth. We had one of our kids when he was four. He and I were driving back from Dallas, and he was sitting in the back seat, and he just chimed in, I want a different God to make me, Daddy. Because we tell him all the time, God made you. And I, I was interested, so I thought, okay, Eli, like, what God do you want to make you? And he sat up real straight in his car seat, and he goes, Eli. He just articulated what you said. He, as four, wanted to be like God, and he didn't want any God over the top of him. Now, we think that as adults, but we just know better than to say it out loud. He didn't know any better at four, and that's the sin nature right there. Well, it reminds us of the fact that Jesus was tempted by Satan in the, yeah. in the wilderness before he began his public ministry. And he tempted him three times with turning the uh, rocks to bread, to casting off the temple, the angels saving him, and all the riches of the world. It appeared the idea of beautiful, the food, 
and then the riches of the world being something that that they could be the, he could be his own god in a sense in that way and then also john 2 6 first john 2 16 talks about the, the source of a lot of our our sin is the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and this pride this boastful pride of life and that's what is there and we've been going through the same thing all of this time and so eve gave it to adam and adam ate now for Eden, eve to eat it took all the temptation and even the sunday punch of of satan eve just gave it to adam and he ate he just took it says something about us men is yeah. all i can say <laughs> and so they ate the fruit which was disobedience to God, and it in a sense was a very great rebellion against God and his, uh, 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 the, the, his whole plan. And so their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. But not like they thought. Hmm. Their eyes were opened to guilt and to shame. And they became aware of their sinfulness. Now, an older generation, we've all talked about sin and sins, but there's a word that you use a lot and others have used a lot in this generation, I think, says more, and that's the word brokenness. It says more than sin. Yeah. To be broken in all aspects of our life. Yeah. I think we all resonate with that brokenness. Yeah. And so, uh, eyes were open to guilt and shame, and what did they do? Well, they hid from God. There's something about it, you know, that when we disobey God, we want to run away. We want to hide because we know that we're guilty and we're shamed. I, I can remember, this is very basic human nature. I, I remember as a six-year-old boy one time. We lived in Winslow, Arizona. I actually stood on that corner of Winslow, Arizona. <laughs> but I lived in Winslow, Arizona, and... and uh, one day I did something, disobeyed my mother, and she said, you come here right now. Well, I was fast, and so I began to run. You can't catch me. And I ran out there about 30, 40 yards, and she didn't make a move. She said, that's all right, son. You've got to come back sometime. Smart mama. So I just decided I'd go back at the time and take whatever came. But that's what we try to do. We try to, we try to run from God. And then another thing that happened was, Adam talked about this, is that, that I heard you walking and I was afraid. Gone was that fellowship. Gone was that, that intimacy that he had had. And in place of that, there was now fear. Fear of God. So how does that play out? Yeah. Well, because you look at it. I mean, you look at the consequences. I think it's interesting you talk about the sin and brokenness and so often we want to make brokenness in our sin almost playful. Like, it's not that big a deal, but you look at the consequences in this passage, um, and you think about their perfect fellowship with the Lord, and yet in this moment, that fellowship is broken. And now the consequences come in. I mean, you see the consequences for the serpent, that he's going to end up on his belly. Um, you see the consequences for woman with her childbearing and um, the way her relationship plays out some with her husband and you see the consequences for the husband and the ways that for Adam and the way that he uh, is the works and how food comes out it's more difficult but then you see the big consequence in verse 22 to 24 and that's them being put out of the garden 
um, and them having to leave the garden and not being able to come back in. You, you see there in 22, it talks about the Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. Why does that even matter? What would matter if they continued to live forever? Well, if they continued to live forever, they would stay in their broken state of separation for all time. They'd stay separated from God because of their sin. Um, and so what we see are, are real deep consequences. Um, and one of the things we first have to realize from the very beginning is that sin is not playful. In fact, Michelle and I talk about it all the time. We don't want to put anything in front of our kids that makes sin playful because the consequences of sin right here are complete brokenness and separation from God. Um, and we have to understand that state before we understand anything about hope. So what do, you, what do you see? So here's the thing. This passage can look like, you, I, can, I can imagine someone sitting out here and thinking, well, you guys are supposed to talk about hope and all I've heard is judgment and consequence. What a great passage you guys picked. Um, what does this have to do with hope? I think, I think in the very beginning, all the way through this whole story, there's grace, there's mercy, and there's hope. All of these are listed all the way through. In the way he had very approached, Adam heard God walking as he usually did in the garden. Now, suppose your son or one of your children disobeyed you drastically in what you had said and, and asked them not to do, and, and they disobeyed and rebelled against you. What would be your normal reaction? Well, it might be my reaction to come in like a, like a Texas tornado. And, and really wreak havoc with them because they disobeyed me. But it's interesting that God did not. He came walking in slowly, as he usually did. And that, to me, that was an act of grace in itself. Rather than coming in and hammering them over the head immediately, he came in to give them a chance and an accountability. And not only that, uh, I would ask you the question, do you love your children any less after they have disobeyed you? No. Of course no. not. None of us do. Even when they disobey, which is a part of life, we don't love them any less, and sometimes we show our love even more in various ways, even, even that of bringing them to accountability. The second thing that really stands out to me in this, in this passage of Scripture is the question that Jesus asked. Adam, where are you? Where are you? Now, in our world today, we've always talked and we've written books and we've seen how man has acted of seeking God. They wanted a God. They've made God in their own image. They've, they've made idols. They've, they've searched with God and philosophy and everything else, but searching for God. When the reality is, it's God searching for us. It's God searching for man. And all the way through the Bible, you see this. In fact, it even seems like God is grieving over man. Back in 1893, a woman by the name of Frances Thompson wrote a book, or wrote a poem, long poem, called The Hound of Heaven. And in this, she describes her, her trying to flee from God and, and getting away from God. And instead, God is there like a hound from heaven chasing and I think that is what God is doing with man all the way through here. He is trying. You look in Psalm 139. We can't get away from God. Wherever we go, we can't get away from God. We can't hide from God. God is there, and he's searching for man. He's wanting to pull man 
to himself. And all the way through the Bible you find that. The prodigal son story. The father standing on the, on the, on the uh, porch looking for his son. His son comes back from his life in sin. And the father runs to him. And that's the picture of God. God is coming to them. Adam, where are you? And what he was seeking was not punishment, but he was seeking confession so that there could be followed by a sense of forgiveness. Another thing I see in this is down in verse 15. Verse 15 is a great, great verse. Verse 15 simply talks about the fact that between your seed, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Well, first thing it says, it refers to the seed of woman. It's not many woman, women, it's one woman, and it's not many seeds. Galatians 3, 16, in Paul's interpretation is, that it was one seed and he uses the singular. What is the seed of woman? It is not Cain. It is the prophecy of Jesus Christ that is going to come one day. The seed of, of the woman. And to me that is the very first indication that there will be a virgin birth. It's not the seed of man and woman, it's the seed of woman. And that she will be born of a virgin. Can you even begin to imagine? I can't. What it meant that day in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. When God became incarnated into human flesh to live among us. That just blows my mind to think about that. But that's what Christmas is all about. That's why we put up decorations. That's why we celebrate. Why we we get together as family. Why we worship. Is because of, of Christmas. I, I tell you what, Christmas special time to me. I, I love the Christmas season. You have, I'm sure, even as young as you are, you have favorite Christmases. <laughs> Absolutely. But I have some that are very favorite to me. When our grandchildren were little, one of the things that we did several times was uh, uh, on Christmas Eve was dress them up in the costumes, even when they were two and three, five, seven. We dressed them up in the costumes of the nativity scene. And then I read the Christmas story from the Bible and, and they played it out, being the shepherds and the mother, Mary and Joseph and the wise men and so forth. And, and it, it really was an attempt to show the meaning of yeah. Christmas, yeah. even to children. Yeah. Well, I can imagine, I remember that because my wife, Michelle, um, she tells me that same type of story when she was little that she would, they would reenact. And she reminds me over and over again, she was always the angel. Um, and she doesn't want me to forget she was the angel. So wait, and I she reminds that. you. She of reminds that. Yeah. me of that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I can. I guess one of my favorite Christmases of all time, when 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 the power of God was seen, I guess in a, in a very special way, and and His ability to change lives. My father wasn't a Christian for a long time. I grew up in a home where my mother was a Christian, but not my dad. Uh, he didn't go to church, and he didn't care about church. He didn't care mom went or us, but he don't ask him to go. And uh, even until the time I had been pastor in Dumas several years and had kids of our own, uh, he was not a Christian. He re- very strongly ob- objected to me going into the ministry. But I got a phone call one night when it was Dumas after church one Sunday night, 
and my mother was on the phone and she said, Ed said, our prayers have been answered. And I said, what? He said, your dad made a profession of faith tonight and he was saved. He's going to be baptized next Sunday. I'll tell you what, that was such a great thing. I didn't get to go to his baptism. We were so far away and I, I didn't see him for several months, but Christmas time, we drove out there and we were with my brothers and sisters, my mother and dad, and everybody there gathered around Christmas dinner around the long table and Sylvia and I gave him a Bible, his very first Bible he'd ever owned. And he had his Bible, he was so proud of that Bible. And he got up at the beginning of the meal and he said, I want my son to read the, the Christmas story from the Bible, my Bible. And so he gave me the Bible and I read the Christmas story and then he prayed. First time in my life I ever heard him pray. Now I want to tell you, that was an emotional moment. Yeah. But I saw the power of God to change people's lives. This is what God was doing. He'd been searching for him and finally sent a pastor to talk with him in such a way that he made that decision to Christ, come to Christ. God, that's what Christmas is all about. Yeah. And to me, when you see this, born of a virgin, it's a very special thing. Yeah. But also it said that he would bruise the heel of her seed. And that's what happened. Yeah. Jesus came and, and he suffered. All of the people turned against him. They cried for his crucifixion. He was betrayed. He was denied. He was put on a cross, nailed there. In, in Isaiah 53, it describes it 700 years before Christ, what was actually happening in it vivid description of his suffering. He was bruised. And after six hours, he died. Now, Satan thought he had a victory. But he didn't. Because it also says that he might bruise the heel of, of the seed, but the seed would bruise his head, crush, destroy his head. And there came that resurrection morning, Amen. and he came alive, yeah. and that was the, that just sealed the whole thing. Yeah. Well, that just reminds me of Hebrews two fourteen and fifteen, it says now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Like you just think about that, and you come back to the to Genesis three fifteen, and this is seen as the first picture of the gospel. Like right in the moment where Adam and Eve are receiving the consequences for the entrance of sin, they're also receiving the picture of Christ. That God's plan from the beginning was for Jesus to come. Like this is not this is this is I mean this is God's plan A all along is for Jesus to enter. Um, it's not like. Adam and Eve messed up and God went, oops, I got to find another plan. Yeah, before the foundations of the world. That's right. right. Yes. And so Jesus, from the very beginning, you see in this passage hope. Verse 15 is a picture of hope. It's so interesting. We talk about Adam and Eve before this point. But verse 20, Eve doesn't get her name until verse 20. She's just been the woman until this point. So right at the point where the consequences are coming in, death is entering in for Adam and Eve, Adam names his wife Eve, which means life. He named his wife life right at the point that he was given the consequence of death. Why would he do that? There was a picture of hope 
that in the way that God had provided and made provision, they would be able to move forward. It's fascinating um, and so encouraging to know. Um, you can go back to Romans uh, chapter 5, uh, verses 15 to 21, and, and get a picture again of, uh, of what it, how sin entered through the one man, Adam, and how salvation came through the one man, Jesus Christ. And it's a picture of this playing out um, and how Christ is the fulfillment of that. It's a tremendous thing that God planned this all the way, and, and the hope, grace and mercy and hope are written all through the Bible, but it's, it's found here in the third chapter, yeah. and that's why we have Christmas, yeah. why we celebrate the advent of Christ and the fulfillment of that prophecy. Yeah, amen. Well, so what does it practically mean? I mean, so this happened, sin came into the world, Christ came, we celebrate Christ. What does it mean for us today? Like, how do we live in hope right now? What does that look like? I, I think one of the things is it gives us a responsibility as Christians. Because going back to that thing I was talking about a while ago, when God asked, where are you? And he was searching for man in the sense, in that, in that sense. Uh, God, God uses us as a part of that search. That he's wanting to pull people to him, but he uses us. It was a pastor's wife in Gallup, New Mexico, where I was living later in life, a little bit later in life, that came and and she made the initi took the initiative in getting me to a place where she told me how to be saved and how to find Christ, and I was saved. But God used someone. God wants to use us yeah. to share the gospel, to share the story, the good news of, of Jesus Christ with, with people. And that, I think that's one of the big lessons that we have out of this. Yeah, and what a great, what a, there's no better time than the Christmas season. People are willing to talk about it. Uh, they're willing to let you talk about Jesus and, and hear, and they want to know, and they're curious. So it's a great season for that. I think one of the things I, I, I try to wrestle with is this idea of hope that, you know, when we're celebrating Advent, we're looking at the first coming of Christ, and we have the privilege where we sit now in history to look back and see Christ having been born and fulfilling this prophecy and many other prophecies. Um, and we can go, yes, I can cling to that hope but we're still not yet seeing the fulfillment of the second coming. And we're living in this in-between, and we kind of have to live with a hope deferred, right? There's, there's hope in what we've seen, but yet look at our lives. Like there's people here right in this moment that there's great brokenness that they're enduring. Um, now this passage speaks directly to um, their, the consequences of their choice. Like they made a choice to rebel against God, and there were consequences to that. Um, each of us in here will know what that feels like. We've rebelled against God and there are consequences to that. We also know that just living in a broken world, there is just reality to the consequences of a broken world, like health and other things that come along with that. Um, so how do we live with our hope deferred, knowing that it's not yet fulfilled? I mean, you think about it. God gave this promise in verse 15 of the coming one. In chapter 4, verse 1 of Genesis, Eve has a son and names him Cain. And the way that it describes how she names him is you, you wonder if she doesn't believe this is the one that's to come that God promised. And wouldn't that be the way that we work? Okay, God, I had a little bit of hardship. Now you're going to fulfill your promise in the next few days and everything's going to be fine, right? Well, it wasn't for thousands of years that God fulfilled the promise of sending Christ. Um, and so for us to live in the now, know, what did Jesus say? In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. 
And so we put our hope in him in the meantime, while knowing we may not have all of our hope fulfilled very quickly. There's still brokenness. We still have to live in the here and now and know that that doesn't diminish the power and authority of Christ. That means that we are still clinging, hopefully, to what is to come and thankfully for his first coming. And, but that propels us forward. And that's why we take a season to really focus on it. Because if we don't, we'll be like generations of the Old Testament and generations of our own family where we just forget what God has done and we'll forget his faithfulness and we walk away from him because it's taking longer to fulfill the promise than we want it to take. Well, we live in a broken world and we do suffer and many of the things that happen. But there is one verse in Matthew that I can't get away from, and lo, I am with you always, even at the end of the world. And so even as we face this brokenness, even as we face these problems of life, we know we're not alone, that the Spirit of God is with us and lives within us because of Jesus Christ. And when you get to be my age, you begin to think about hope in another way, that there is a time coming when I shall spend eternity with him. And it's interesting in this that, that Genesis starts in a paradise, and then we have the promise of a paradise that shall never end at the end of our lives. And that all the way through, that he can be with us because of our faith in Jesus. That's good. What I think is we kind of wrap up here, there's, there's the image here of in this passage where Adam and Eve... They found their own coverings, right? Like they sewed these fig leaves together and they made their own coverings. And what does God do in his provision? He says, no, I'm going to provide some animal skins for you and I'm going to provide you your coverings. And I just think it's such a beautiful picture. Like in our brokenness, we try to provide our own coverings. Let me fix it. Let me try to find a way. Let me provide for myself. I know I'm broken, but let me try to figure out how to make it right. And God has stepped in through the entrance of Jesus Christ and said, your coverings will never be enough, but my covering is more than enough. If you would trust in my son, I will provide for you in a way that you can never even imagine. Um, and that's what's incredible is in, the rebe- in our rebellion, Christ died for us. Um, and that's what we celebrate. And, and from the very beginning of the scriptures, God tells us of the hope of the coming Christ. And so we get to celebrate this Advent season.